Luke chapter 10 this morning. Luke chapter 10. I love the line in that song, if, you jo- if we join you in your sufferings, we will join you when you rise. That is a great promise to hang on to. So Luke chapter 10, continuing our series, Jesus for Everyone, uh, and uh, essentially beginning what is uh, kind of the second act of, uh, of Luke's story he is telling here. Act 1 is basically asking the question, who is this Jesus? And so we have things like the birth account, the Christmas story, the beginning of his ministry where he's baptized and, and kind of announces that he is... Uh, he is there and he is on the scene. Uh, accounts of him doing, doing things like, like healing the sick and healing the blind, of raising people from the dead, casting out demons, calming storms. In effect, Luke is answering uh, in those first, uh, those first eight to nine chapters or so, he's answering the question that we see in chapter seven and chapter eight that comes both from his disciples and from his opponents. Who is this man? And the resounding answer to this comes in chapter 9, that he is both Christ, the Messiah, and he is the Son of God. Not just one of those things, he is both of those things in one person. And now in chapter 10, uh, we have this shift that moves into Act 2, and it goes from who is this to if Jesus is this, uh, and if he is in fact the Son of God and the long-awaited Messiah, then how should we live? And that's basically the question that Luke starts to answer for us now. And I wonder how many of you came in here uh, this morning. It's a holiday weekend, all kinds of stuff going on, and the, the calendar with school starting and kind of settling into new routines. I wonder how many of you came in here this morning asking that, que- that question. If Jesus is who he says he is, then how should I live? And here's the thing, I think that, that many of us think we're asking that question. I think many of us in this room think that we're asking that question, but I would challenge myself and challenge you, are we really asking that question? My experience is that oftentimes uh, our prayers, our honest heart's desires sound less like, Jesus, since you are the Son of God, I want to shape my life around that truth. Please help me uh, to know how to do that well. But instead, our questions are m- more like, what is God's will for my life? And we kind of stop there, and by my life, the, the, the emphasis is on my life. God, what do you want me to do, but it's my life. And so what we're, what we're really asking is, God, what do you want me to do with my life that will lead me to be happy, successful, and content? That's really what we mean when we say, what is God's will for my life? We want God to be in the process. We want God to be a part of it. We want God to give his blessing to what we do. But our end goal and the shaping factor is less about the person of Jesus and the will of God and more about our own agendas, our own goals, our own desires, our own things that we want which looks strangely similar to our unbelieving neighbors. 
And so if all of our goals look just like the goals of our unbelieving neighbors, then the question becomes, how are we any different? And how does the person of Jesus change that at all? And if he doesn't change that at all, then really what's the point? What are we really doing here when we show up on Sunday mornings and whenever we go to our discipleship groups? And so as we begin this section in chapter 10, we're not asking the question, if Jesus is who he says he is, how can I leverage that to my advantage? That is not the question we're asking. But as we'll see this morning, that is probably the question that a lot of Jesus' disciples were asking. Instead, we are collectively asking the question, if Jesus is who he says he is, how do I shape my life around that truth? So that is our guiding question over the course of the next few weeks as we go through this part of Luke's gospel. Jesus began answering that question in last week in chapter 9. He says that one implication of the fact that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God is that we should be His followers. We should be His disciples. And that following Him will not be a path of glory, but a path of suffering, which makes no sense. Like we're so used to saying that that it just kind of it just kind of like rolls off the tongue. But if we're talking about the and, and liberate Israel and and set the captives free and do all the things the Messiah is supposed to do, then it would it doesn't really make sense that his followers would be on a path to suffering. And Jesus clues us in. At least clues his disciples in, and clues us into the fact that this is going to play out very differently than they probably thought it was going to. And now Jesus is going to give us a further picture of how we are to live in light of who he is. And it should not be shocking to us that what Jesus is going to lay out for us emphatically does not look like the same things that our unbelieving neighbors are after. And so that has huge implications for all of us and how we live our lives in this room. So Luke chapter 10, we'll start in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 9, but we're we're really going to focus on the first few verses here. Luke chapter 10, 1 through 9. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And if you'll remember last week, we talked about where he was about to go. He was heading to Jerusalem. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. All right, we'll stop right there. We'll pick back up in verse 10 here in just a few minutes. So this chapter kicks off much like chapter 9 began. If you remember chapter 9, Jesus uh, is talking to his 12, uh, the, the, the 12, the apostles, uh, kind of the inner circle of disciples. He's talking to the, uh, the, the, the 12 and sending them out. Now in chapter 10, he's sending out the 72. And if your natural question is, well, who are the 72? The answer is, we have no idea. 
We don't know who these people are. We don't know what made them qualified to be the ones to go out. Is that all that was remaining uh, that, that, that could go out? Or did Jesus handpick uh, like 72 out of a, a larger group of followers that he had? We, we don't really know. Um, we just know that 72 people were being sent out by uh, Jesus. They were simply followers of Jesus, his disciples. And much as the, the sending out of the twelve was a change in Jesus' ministry philosophy, uh, kind of moving from Jesus doing, if not the bulk of the work, all of the work of the ministry, uh, to delegating that authority and that mission to those twelve, the sending out of the seventy-two is a further shift in that ministry and a further expansion of what Jesus is doing. Uh, now that he has made it clear just who he is uh, through the transfiguration and, and, and that Peter has confessed him as the Christ and he has said, yes, you are absolutely right, I am the Christ, the Messiah. What we saw last week is that it says Jesus had set his face toward Jerusalem. And so Jesus moves from ministry in the countryside to a vast expansion of this ministry as he starts to go towards Jerusalem, towards the city. He's not holding anything back now. No more are we going to have to, uh, are, are, are you going to see him kind of with this cagey, like, don't tell anyone what's happened here, um, where he's kind of trying to say, don't go out there and do that, because if you do that, you're going to get me killed. Now he's saying, you guys go out and share the message with everyone. You see this in verse 2. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray earnestly that the Lord of the uh, harvest, send out laborers into the harvest. Jesus is saying it's time to take this message far and wide because the work is plentiful in front of us. We need more laborers. So go out, take the message, and those that hear you, peace be upon them, bring them into the fold, and we will send them out too. People need to hear the message of the kingdom that we have to bring. This is what Jesus is doing, sending them out. But then Jesus says this little odd phrase. He says, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Sending you out as lambs among wolves. I'm not sure if you guys have picked up on this the last few weeks, but Jesus would make a terrible football coach. He would not be very good at getting his, his, uh, his team fired up to go out before a game. Because he says things that no football coaches... Can you imagine a football coach that gives a pregame speech like Jesus does? I mean, last week he tells them that in order to follow him, it means they're going to have to experience uh, death or something like death in order to do it. This week he says they're going out like lambs among wolves. Can you imagine if yesterday, Josh Heupel, coach for Tennessee, if he goes into the locker room and before they're getting ready to play Virginia, he turns to his Tennessee football team and he says, I've got to be honest, y'all are about to head out there to play, you're about to go out there and play this team, and they're way better than you are. Not only are they way better than you are, they're much stronger than you are, they're much tougher than you are, and frankly, you're about to get torn apart like a bunch of lambs before wolves. Let's go get them. That's not going to get anybody fired up to go out and play, right? Even, even whenever you have these, like, uh, uh, whenever you have these, uh, they call them like the money games, where you bring in like the, the small schools to go play the really big schools, Right? Even at those games, whenever the coach maybe has to lie, 
But he's going to tell his team, you've got a chance to win this game. You can go and do this. He doesn't say, you guys are, we're just here to make money. You guys are, uh, you guys are like lambs before the slaughter. So let's just hope we make it through this without anybody, you know, getting killed. Uh, so even, even those teams, the coach doesn't say that, even if it would be uh, true. It doesn't get anyone fired up. It's not motivational at all. Nobody is like high-fiving each other after a, a pregame speech like that saying, we got it. Uh, they're instead probably looking around like, thanks, coach. Appreciate the vote of confidence. Really, that's, that's, that's wonderful. Um, that's not the way that, that we do things, but this is how Jesus sets it up before he sends out the 72. So what is Jesus' angle here? What does he have to gain by telling these people that they are going out to do his mission, but he is sending them? It's not, it doesn't even say that they're going out. He says he is sending them out as lamb among wolves. Why say something like that? And then why give the instructions that he gives? Tells them don't take any money, no sandals, no knapsack. Go out empty-handed. Why would Jesus do something like that? Jesus is sending them out on mission, and he is emphasizing before they go their weakness, because this is how God does things. Over and over and over again, throughout Scripture, we have this story. The, 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 the weakness is the point that God is trying to make. You can go all back through the work of God with his people, and you can see that this is simply how he does things. He chooses the, the weakness of people to be a place to display his strength. Think back to Moses, and whenever God calls Moses, he shows up in the burning bush. Moses, a one-time failed revolutionary already in Egypt, uh, who has run away out in the wilderness to get away from Egypt. He is done with that place. He doesn't want to go there at all. God shows up in the burning bush and says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to free my people. And Moses' response, you got the wrong man. I am not the guy for the job. You don't understand. I, like, I'm slow when I, when I speak. Uh, I, I, can't, I don't know what to say. No one's going to listen to me. And God more or less answers him back and says, you're exactly right. That's the whole reason I've chosen you, Moses. That's the whole point. That's why you're perfect for the job. Because you have so many weaknesses that make you not perfect for the job. You are perfect for the job. We were, when we were in the book of Judges, if you guys remember the book of Judges, we looked at the story of Gideon. He was a nervous guy that continually asked God to, to show that he was with him. And then God said to him, you know what? You've got too many men for this battle that I have for you. You have too many men. I'm going to need you to send some home. And so Gideon basically cuts his army in half, uh, cuts it down to about 10,000 people. And God said, nope, that's still too many. You still, you still got way too many people, to which Gideon's like, what are you talking about? They, they far outnumber us, uh, to which he says, you're right. They need to outnumber you by more. Send more of them home. And so he whittles his force down all the way down to 300 men. And God said, okay, now, if you win, everyone will know it's because I did it, not because of the strength of your army. So he whittles it all down for Gideon to show that it's not about the strength of the army. It's about the strength of 
the Lord. A forgotten little brother out tending the sheep that, that, that they totally forgot was even out there becomes the slayer of Goliath and eventually the greatest king of Israel. Story after story, God does this. When it comes time to send Jesus, his own son, to earth, where does Jesus come to? He comes to a no-name family, to a no-name town, and a no-name country. And consistently, this is how God works. He does things with the weak, forgotten, and the unknown. And here he does it again. 72 no-name disciples are about to be the chosen laborers to take the message of the Son of God to the plentiful harvest. And he is the one that is sending them out saying, nobody's going to know who you are. Nobody's going to remember your name. You're going out to do this, and you're going out with, with being completely exposed, with no way to defend yourself. Why? Because their strength is not in themselves. It is in their shepherd. And what Jesus is saying, he says that he is the good shepherd. He says that the Father will take care of them. If you're a sheep surrounded by wolves, you're going to need a shepherd to defend you when no one else, and when he does, no one else will say, look how strong the sheep have become. They warded off the wolves. Instead, people will say, look how good and strong the shepherd is. And that's how he's sending them out. Just like that. Let's keep reading because Jesus has some more things to say to us here. Luke 10, 10. But wherever you enter a town, they do not receive you. Go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town uh, that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And I tell you, it will be more bearable on on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would, be, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment of Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Strong words. The one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So Jesus comes and he, he starts la- like... Uh, talking about these different towns that they had been to and that they would be going to. And he, he says, look, you've seen the works that I've done. We've seen Jesus doing works in Capernaum. And, uh, and, and, and he, what he says is, you've seen me. I've been there. I've been in your midst. You've seen the people healed. You've seen the demons cast out. And if you still don't believe, then your judgment is on you. Because you've got enough information now. It's going to be worse than any of the worst judgments you've read about in the Old Testament. It's going to be even worse because you've seen and you've heard the message. So he sends them out and he says, you go. And if anyone does not welcome you, will not hear your message. If they reject you, then just move on. Just keep going. God will handle the judgment of those people in those cities. This world that we live in where we live and move and have our being, this world defines its goals around self-fulfillment, self-actualization, finding and being our true selves. And what Jesus says is you need to realize you are being sent out and your only hope is in complete dependence upon the shepherd. That's it. 
He's not sending them out for them to, to better know themselves and for them to, 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 to better like find a sense of passion and purpose. He's not sending them out with that type of thing. Instead, he's sending them out and he's saying, your entire dependence will be upon the Father. And that is how Jesus is defining success. The more dependent you are upon Him, the more you will know what His will is. That's not on our terms at all. But time and time and time and time and time and time again, when you read through the Scriptures, you see this is how God works. If you want to know God's will, you're going to have to move from being dependent upon who you are to being fully dependent upon who He is. From there, the 72 head out on mission. We don't really know how long they were gone. We don't really know where they went. There's really almost no record of this uh, kind of missionary push from Jesus and how all of it worked out other than what we get to read right here. And when they make their way back to Jesus, they've got good news upon their return. They've got good news in order to, 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 to share with Jesus. And here's what they say in verse 72. The 72 returned with Joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And then Jesus gives a curious response to this joyful pronouncement that these disciples do. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And behold, I give you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So they come back with this great glorious report. And it sounds like a really good message that they have. It sounds like something really good has happened. But Jesus' reaction is so strange. Do you not think that it's odd that that they come back celebrating that they were able to cast out demons in Jesus' name? But then Jesus' response is is that, he basically gives them a light rebuke? Like, what are they supposed to, like, shouldn't they be excited that that happened? Shouldn't they be excited that this is what, uh, what has just happened? You know, they go out and they come back and they say, Jesus, it's just like you said it would be. Even the demons listen to us. We've never had so much power. This feels like a good report back. But Jesus kind of pushes back He doesn't start handing out high fives. He doesn't do what what all the leadership material would tell you. Like leadership material would tell you, this is a great time to encourage your team. Celebrate the wins, right? Like start high five and you need to go around and you need to tell them, hey, great job, really well done. Fantastic. I told you you could do it. I knew you could do it. That is awesome. He's not handing out attaboys and saying, that's amazing that you were able to do that. I knew you could do it. He's not being an encourager. And the reason why is because he realizes that they have gotten their motivation all wrong for this thing. They've completely missed the motivation for why they have gone out. It's very possible for us, maybe even likely in our sinful, in our sinful flesh, it is very possible for us to go out into the world and do great things in the name of Jesus and do it all for very wrong reasons. 
These 72 came back and they were so excited about what they had experienced and what they had seen. But in order to understand what Jesus is saying, you have to ask the question, why were they excited? What is it that got them excited? Here's what they didn't say. And this will maybe kind of give you a clue into where uh, Jesus is at. They didn't say, Jesus, we went out and we preached the good news to the sick, to the demon-possessed, to the poor and the powerless, to the forgotten and the outcasts. And they heard the great news, and in your name, we liberated them from their oppression. And even the demons listened to us, and the people were set free. That is not what they said. What they said was, we rejoice, Jesus, that you have given us this power. We rejoice that we have the power to do this. Their joy was not in the freedom of the message, but in the power that came with it. That's what they were celebrating. So Jesus says, you like power? Let me tell you about power. You guys have seen nothing. You're excited about power over demons? I've seen Satan himself fall like lightning when he was cast out of heaven. That's power. That's power far superior to anything you guys experienced out there on the road. I'll give you more power than anything you've ever imagined. You don't have to worry about snakes and scorpions. Don't worry. We're not bringing those out up here. That's not the point, that what, they're, what he's trying to say. What he's trying to say is you, you've got power over these things because God is going to protect you. We will, he will take care of you. And the snakes and scorpions are representative of, of, of evil and the, the, the things that kind of bite at them. And, and he's saying, you've got more power than you've ever imagined. And I've seen more power than you can even fathom. You don't have to worry about any of the things. You'll have plenty of power when you go out into the harvest. But don't find your joy there. Don't find your joy in the power. Find your joy in the fact that the Father knows your name and He's written it down in the book of life. That is where you will find true joy. Not in this exercise of power, but the fact that the Father knows your name. You'll see and do much greater things than these, but that is not where you find your joy. You see, Jesus knows that the end result may look good, but motivation matters. It matters in how we do the work of the kingdom. Wrong motivation will lead to a wrong source of joy, and a wrong source of joy will lead you to do things that do not honor Jesus or represent the kingdom of God. Remember, they're seeing him as the Messiah right now. That's important for you to understand as the the promised military ruler who would set Israel free. This is the primary framework for how they're seeing Jesus right now. The promised ruler. And they're starting to see their path to victory. Because if even his followers have this level of power, they're not going to be able to be stopped. It's starting to make sense to them. Oh, I see how we win this now. I see how we win this. This is kind of like Gideon. We don't need a huge army if we've got this kind of power. Oh, it's, it, it's in Jesus' name for sure. He's the, he's the guy in charge for sure. It's in his name. But look at what I can do. They're starting to see their path to victory. 
They're starting to sense that power is within their grasp. They don't sound much like lambs among wolves, do they, when they come back? But Jesus says, listen, you've got your motivations all wrong. Listen, this is why I don't play the political game with the name of Jesus. It's why you will never hear me endorse a candidate or play politics. And I know for some of you that can be super frustrating because you're like, man, the choice is so clear. It's so important. And listen, I've said up here a thousand times, it is so important that that we are active and engaged in the political process in this country. But I'm not going to stand up here and I won't do it because the political game is by its very nature a power game. And if as Christians, our aim is to, to somehow accumulate power, then how is our motivation any different than anyone else out there? Our motivation is no different. If, if our goal is the accumulation of power, we look exactly like our friend down the street who doesn't know Jesus at all. And so this is why we're not gonna, I'm not going to stand up here and do it. Jesus tells his followers that if they want power, there is way more where that came from. But if they find their identity, their hope, their joy in that power that they've been given, then they'll miss out on a far, far greater truth than the accumulation of power. That God himself knows their name. We don't know their name. We don't know the name of any of the 72. We don't know a single person. I wonder if you were to go and ask them when they were being sent out, if you were to go to ask them and you, were to tell, and you were to tell them, hey, there's a book being written about what you guys are doing right now. In fact, there's four different accounts being written of what you guys are doing right now while you guys are going out to declare this mission. And it's going to make up a larger book that's going to be the best-selling book in the history of the world. And it, we're, we're covering exactly what you guys are doing right now. I wonder if, if you had told them that, if they would be excited to know that their mission might be recorded, but their names wouldn't be at all. Or if they would feel like, well, that's, that's pretty cool. My name's going to end up in this book and people are going to know me. They're going to know who I am. They're going to know what I've done. I'm going to be able to tell people, hey, I'm in this book. I just wonder if you told them that no one's going to know their names because, frankly, they're not all that important, if they would just be offended and disappointed. Everyone is on board with God's will so long as it involves them getting power and prestige and notoriety. Not everyone is on board with a life that is lived out as lambs among wolves and a name that is utterly unknown to anyone except for God himself. But according to Jesus, that is the place that we find our true joy. Knowing that our name is written down in the book of life. Wrong motivation will lead us to wrong conclusions about the nature of God and what he wants out of us. Where we find our joy will shape so much about what we do. I love this quote. I've used this quote before. Blaise Pascal uh, once said this. He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. 
The cause of someone going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, just attended with different views, different motivations. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man. That's a powerful statement. You will walk towards, pursue, go after whatever you think is the place you will find your true joy. And if, if Pascal is right, and I think he is, this is true of every person without exception. So Jesus is right to say it's important that you understand what your motivation is because that will, that will determine how you live. The point that that Jesus is making and the point of this quote is that wherever we find our joy, that will impact the way we go about our lives. The life of a person that finds his joy in earthly power, even earthly power in Jesus' name, will look and feel very different than the person who knows that joy is found not primarily in this life, but in the next. You will look profoundly different. So what about you? This doesn't mean we can't enjoy the gifts that God has given us. We should. That's the part of the point in the gifts. Certainly we can. But my question is, what motivates you in this life? Where is your heart? What is your source of joy? Is it rooted in this world or the next? Maybe power isn't where you think you find joy. But maybe it's somewhere else. Where is it that that, that your heart gravitates to and says, if I just have that thing, I will be joyful. I will be happy. I will be excited. And if that motivation comes from anything other than the fact that the Father knows your name and that that in, in the life to come, you will spend it with Jesus, then you are in a very dangerous place of doing things for very wrong reasons which oftentimes will lead you to doing things that don't honor the name of Jesus at all. Jesus sent them out on mission that they might proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. This was their message. That mission is the same today for us. We will find more joy in seeking out we will find more joy in seeking out the, the good and of others in the name of Jesus, in the mission of Jesus, than we will find in seeking out power and prestige. Where will you be happier when you obtain that thing that you think would make you happiest or in the liberation and salvation of others on mission? Jesus is saying, be careful where you find that joy. And it can be hard because the two can look very similar. It can feel very much like victory in Jesus' name, but Jesus is saying, that's not the kind of victory I'm looking for. What is your motivation? The mission Jesus came on stripped him of his power. The mission that Jesus came on led him like a lamb to the slaughter. 
But that was because his ultimate aim was never about earthly kingdom power. Never. But a heavenly one. I'm going to let Paul close this out here. Philippians chapter 2. I think this says it perfectly. It, it frames it perfectly. It talks about Jesus' source, his motivation for his joy. It talks about the, the, the mission that he came for. And it helps to frame our own motivation whenever we read this. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. So Paul is saying complete his joy. This is where he will find his joy. Of being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among you, um, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held on to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You may, see, may say, being sent like a lamb among wolves. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This was Jesus' motivation. This was Jesus' motivation. He, he sacrificed everything in order to follow the will of the Father. And why did He do that? Why did He empty Himself? Why did He come in the likeness of man like a lamb before the slaughter? So that He could humble Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. But then it just keeps going. And now he is highly exalted. He has the name above every name. You see, he knew where his joy was found. And he knew that his way on this earth would be full of suffering. But he came anyway. Not only did he come anyway, he set his face toward Jerusalem. And he headed straight to that cross. And Paul says, let your lives Let your minds, let your motivation, let your joy mirror that. And where you do that, you will know God's will. Let's pray. Father, it is our confession that this is so often not our will, that our wills are built around so many other things, so many things that are temporary, that are fleeting, that we miss as we go throughout our lives, as we go throughout our day-to-day routines. Father, we confess that as we walked in here this morning, for most of us, our question was not anything about about what, how we should live our lives in the light of who Jesus is, but instead, our 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 likely motivation when we walked into this place was, God, how can you bless me because I showed up here this morning? Father, change our hearts and give us a motivation that is true and is pure and leads us to the cross. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.